Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Africa's vaccination drive is beset by problems both of demand and supply. In many places, there's vaccine hesitancy. In others, it could be described as vaccine indifference. Ultimately, though, there aren't enough vaccines to go around. And Florence Price was an acclaimed African-American composer from the mid-20th century. But after her death, she and her work were ignored. That's now changing. First up, though. A ruling is expected today from a Moscow court that would designate the movement of jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny as a terrorist organization. On Friday, Mr. Navalny ended a 24-day hunger strike that had carried him to the brink of death as he insisted on being seen by his own doctors. Across Russia, his supporters had faced arrest as they protested. In Moscow, they chanted, Freedom to Navalny and let the doctors in. The increasing repression of those protesters and the threat of rebranding of the opposition as extremists come as President Vladimir Putin's approval numbers continue to sink. The world wondered last week what he would do with the 100,000 troops massed at the border with Ukraine. In the end, they were pulled back. That saber-rattling and the poll numbers are all intimately connected to the threat now posed to the group led by Mr. Putin's most effective critic, Alexei Navalny. He's decided to end his hunger strike because he felt that the Russian authorities have sufficiently satisfied his demand. His demand was to be allowed access to independent medical care. Arkady Ostrovsky is our Russia editor. So what the authorities have done is they took him into a civilian hospital. He was examined by non-prison doctors. Those non-prison doctors then passed on all the results of his tests to Navalny's own physicians. His own doctors told him that if he didn't stop his hunger strike now, they would soon have nobody to treat at all. And in his Instagram post, which he passed through his lawyers, he also said he was very moved by all those people who declared hunger strike in solidarity with him. He didn't want to cause others suffering, so he thought it was the right time, given all those things, to end the strike. So the threat to Mr. Navalny's life seems to have have faded. What do you make of today's court hearing, though, of the threat to his political organization? What, What happens if it is, in fact, branded as an extremist group? It will take it into a completely different political field because it will be illegal. It will be sort of underground political movement from that moment on. 
it will basically mean that anybody working for Navalny directly would be in the violation of this law, could face prison time, and all the financial accounts of uh, Navalny's organization uh, will be seized or blocked. Leonid Volkov, Navalny's chief of staff, who's been coordinating all the political work, he's the brain power. And he said in a long interview yesterday that of course they will carry on work, they're trying to reformat the whole organization, they're not going to give up. It will be working in completely new territory and new conditions. Given their brilliance in coming up with new formats, I have very little doubt that they will find uh, some way. But of course it will be much more confrontational and it will endanger uh, people who work for them. And, and what about the big picture here, the, the opposition movement that Navalny is, is drawing attention to and Vladimir Putin's attempt to, to, to quash that? How's it working? Well, in the past few days and weeks, Jason, we've seen extraordinary ratcheting up of repressions. I was in Moscow just last week, and there are a lot of conversations in Moscow in people's kitchens and their homes telling stories about how this relative had been visited by the police for a tweet or for something they recorded on YouTube in support of Navalny. It really feels Moscow's at a different stage in his political life. Arrests are carried out regularly. The heads of Navalny's regional headquarters have been arrested uh, or detained. There is a atmosphere of fear and the banning of his organization will only increase that sense of pressure on not just Navalny supporters, but on the whole country. You know, people who've been questioned, who've been taken to police station to explain themselves are are scientists, they're teachers, they're people who work for human rights organizations. These are not politicians. And of course, in Russia, with its history of long and uh, terrible history of great terror, of Stalinism, it's not surprising that people are invoking those parallels and saying, you know, this is the now Stalinism being revised. And what about the international dimension of this? I mean, there's there's growing international concern about Mr. Putin's treatment of Mr. Navalny, but also of this this military aggression. And there's talk of a summit between Vladimir Putin and, and President Joe Biden in June. Well, the suggested summit between Biden and Putin, I think, is a recognition, certainly by Biden and by all international community, of how serious the situation is, how much it needs de-escalation. We've seen a very alarming build-up of Russian troops uh, on the Ukrainian border, more than 100,000, which Russia now apparently has pulled back. So this was Russia gesturing and showing to the world, this is what we can do. We can go to war. You better talk to us. I don't think Russia was ever intending seriously to go into war because Putin can't afford serious casualties coming home, given his own slipping popularity. So he needs recognition from Biden and the international community. Well, what has President Biden said about this? So Biden's position has been call spade a spade. He, he called Putin a murderer. He has no illusions. This is not a reset of any kind, but it's a recognition that these are two nuclear powers uh, and Russia has enormous nuclear arsenal. And if we don't stop this spiral of escalation now, we could find ourselves on the brink of a really serious conflict in a very short period of time. And the international community and, and the United States are very concerned about the coercive behavior and the threats uh, against Ukraine. 
But how much do you think the, the domestic concerns and branding Navalny's organization as, as extremists c- connects to that kind of international muscle flexing? I think this two sides of the story completely connected. You can't separate the two. Repression at home always brings aggression abroad. A country that doesn't recognize its own laws, doesn't recognize the rights and dignity of its people will always be a threat internationally because they will try to defend themselves by picking out uh, enemies abroad, by blaming the West for any instability and any opposition politics at home. And I think this is a very clear recognition now in the West that, that what happens to Navalny is completely connected to international security and peace. Thanks very much for joining us, Arkady. Thank you, Jason. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. From a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. It is my strong appeal, whether the vaccines are from COVAX, or from the AVAG or from any source to use the vaccines as quickly as possible. The head of Africa Centers for Disease Control, John Kengasong, urged countries on Thursday to continue their vaccination efforts and warned against wasting vaccines. My appeal to member states is, if we are doing our own part of it to mobilize these vaccines, you do your own part and use the vaccines. Africa CDC had hoped to vaccinate 60% of the continent by the end of next year. But so far, fewer than 6 million jabs have been administered across all of sub-Saharan Africa. That's fewer than have been given out just in the American state of New Jersey. And that sluggish vaccination pace could have consequences for the globe. 47 of Africa's 54 countries have begun vaccinating. But aside from Morocco, which has done about the same share as the global average and the beautiful Seychelles, which has done pretty much all of its tiny population, things are going slowly. John McDermott is our chief Africa correspondent. A few countries are doing okay with what little vaccines they have, countries like Rwanda and Ghana, but most are short of vaccines and not doing very well with the ones they possess. The data we have from the WHO suggests that 32 countries have used less than half of their available doses. And why is that, do you think? There's a couple of reasons. The first is that in many cases, there were operational challenges. There was no proper plan. There was no clear sense of who was going to be vaccinated. And in many places, there's a general sense of a lack of readiness. But then there's the second thing, which I would suggest is more important, and that's a kind of widespread hesitancy amongst a lot of Africans when it comes to COVID vaccines. There was a survey published in March by Afrobarometer, which is a pan-African pollster. It found that in five countries, an average of 60% of respondents said they were unlikely to try to get vaccinated. So what's the cause then behind the hesitancy? I think when people hear the word hesitancy, they often rush to the irrational. And there is a lot of misinformation 
out there. A report last year by Africa CDC, the continent's primary public health body, found that about half of people in 15 countries reckoned that COVID was a foreign plot. About a third thought that African children had died during vaccine trials. However, I think for the most part, hesitancy can be seen in more rational or understandable terms. For many people living in African countries, COVID is not that big a deal, or at least it's perceived to be not that big a deal. Officially, caseloads and death tolls are quite low. It's also often not clear whether the benefits of getting vaccinated outweigh the costs, both in terms of the time you have to take off work, and then also increasingly the perceived risks regarding the main vaccine on the continent, the AstraZeneca one. Doctors and policymakers in Africa are annoyed at how many countries, particularly in Europe, have handled reports of side effects from the AstraZeneca vaccine. In rich countries, governments have choices. In African countries, at the moment, there is very little other choice. And speaking to a lot of doctors, I know that they believe that is one other reason for hesitancy in their countries. So it's clear that there's an issue about uptake and, and certainly across the developing world, we know there are plenty of issues with, with supply. It's sort of not clear which is the bigger problem here for Africa. I think in the short term, demand is the bigger problem. I think that governments need to do a much better job of explaining to people why it is in their interest to be vaccinated. However, also speaking to epidemiologists and policymakers this week, I heard often that supply can help with demand. It's hard to vaccinate masses of people without masses of vaccines. And there's a general sense in which if you can increase the supply of vaccines to countries, that will create momentum. And then the more people get vaccines and are seen by others to do so safely, that will create momentum, that will create demand. So if supply then becomes the, the limiting factor here, what are, what are the issues around supply? What does supplies look like for Africa at the moment? It doesn't look very good. The two main sources for the continent are COVAX, the global alliance that is trying to distribute vaccines to poor countries across the world, which has mostly supplied AstraZeneca vaccines to the continent. And the second is via the African Union, which has a contract with Johnson & Johnson for at least 220 million doses. Africa CDC reckons if COVAX gets the 20 to 27% of people vaccinated in poor countries that it's promised, and that all the doses from Johnson & Johnson arrive, it will be able to meet its target of vaccinating 60% of the continent by the end of 2022. But there's not a lot of margin for error there. The continent either needs for those two sources to come good or to find other sources quickly. So you find in African capitals, health ministers and finance ministers are scrambling to mop up what supplies they can find. I spoke to the Ghanaian health minister, for example, and he said he had had more than 50 meetings with businessmen promising that they could somehow get him vaccine. That's the sense of the desperation in countries that are doing a particularly good job of vaccinating their people. And as those, those deals, large and small, are struck, at, at what point does, does funding become the bottleneck? At present, the main problem isn't money when it comes to actually procuring the vaccines. Where money comes into it is in funding the logistical issues that we talked about earlier. There are some estimates that for every dollar that is spent on 
buying vaccines, another $5 needs to be spent on the logistical side of, of getting them into arms. And that's where things become difficult because COVID has had a massive effect on African economies, public finances are in a mess. And the people who you would expect to assist these governments have been really quite slow. The World Bank, for example, in October promised $12 billion to poor countries, and it's only delivered about $2 billion of that. And of that $2 billion, only seven African countries are getting any of the money. And so what's your read of of the long term of this, how all of these things will be resolved? I think it is looking increasingly difficult for Africa to meet its target of vaccinating 60% of its population by the end of 2022. Some countries will get there, many others probably will not. And that matters hugely for Africa, but it could also matter hugely for the rest of the world. John, thanks very much for joining us. Thank you, Jason. Even as Africa has so far evaded the worst of the pandemic, the situation in India continued to deteriorate over the weekend. This week's episode of The Jab, our sister show examining how vaccines are transforming science and politics, takes a look at why outbreaks have varied so much around the world. When a pathogen enters your body, various bits of your immune system sort of attack it and break it down, and uh, they show it to the immune system. It says, look, here is a thing that I have found in this cell that I do not recognize. Prepare the body to deal with it. And your capability to show different bits of pathogens that have come into your body varies across populations, and it varies genetically. The Jab is out later today and every Monday. Find it wherever well-regulated podcasts are administered. that I ever heard by Florence Price was the fantasy Negra in E minor and this fantasy had such a huge impact on me. I mean, it changed everything about my life. Samantha Ege is a pianist and musicologist at the University of Oxford. She studies and plays the works of mid-century composer Florence Price. I didn't know that black women existed in classical music, which is in a way ridiculous because I am a black woman in classical music. Dr. Ege is not the first person to be surprised and then enthralled by Price's music. In the case of Florence Price, we're dealing not so much with someone who was completely unknown. Boyd Tonkin writes about culture for The Economist. Someone who's actually really quite famous and much acclaimed in her lifetime. But then after her death, almost disappeared. Well, tell me a little bit about who she was. She was born in 1887. She grew up in Arkansas, in Little Rock. She went to study music at the New England Conservatory. And she went back to Arkansas, where there were barriers in her way to pursuing a successful musical career which she at least in part managed to overcome. But in the mid-1920s, tensions started to rise. And like many other African-Americans in Little Rock, she went north. She went to Chicago. And how did she do in Chicago? 
Well, in Chicago, there was a much larger African-American cultural scene. Florence Price joined this circle and she became an extremely well-known and extremely well-respected member of it. And she developed her composing career. And finally, in 1933, she won a competition for her first symphony in E minor, which was then performed by none other than the Chicago Symphony Orchestra, which really was a groundbreaking moment. The first time that a large-scale work by an African-American woman had been performed by one of the great ensembles of American musical life. So given all that success and her assimilation into the Chicago scene, how is it that that her, her music, her legacy, was lost? It really was a question of one step forward, two steps back. She would create these remarkable works. Great musicians, great orchestras would recognize their worth. But then there was a remarkable lack of follow-up. It was as if she could never establish the continuity needed to make her name in a more permanent and enduring way. And this really was a reflection of the inbuilt prejudice of musical and cultural institutions at the time. And you say that the the, the lost legacy is, is being brought back to prominence. How did that come about? Well, there was a fairy tale moment in 2009 when a big cache of her previously undiscovered manuscripts were found mouldering in a house in the suburbs of Chicago. Musical specialists had a much greater access to the whole body of her work. And one of the foremost researchers in this field was Dr. Samantha Egger, who has now recorded four really outstanding works by Florence Price, the four fantasy Negra, and they're now available on Lontano Records. What you hear in the first couple of bars is this very expressive and decorative opening. It's almost like a grand statement where Florence Price is announcing who she is and exactly what she's capable of. a melody begin to emerge and it's a melody from a spiritual called Sinner Please Don't Let This Harvest Pass and so this is the spiritual influence where she's drawing upon the sound world of the enslaved and letting you know about her mixed cultural heritage So now that her work has been returned to prominence, how to keep it there? Well, the greatest single answer, of course, is simply to keep on performing it, to keep on recording it. Samantha Ege has done a fantastic service. And I hope that because of her work, because of the work of others, these remarkable pieces of music can now enter the mainstream repertoire. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you.
that's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.